You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. Happy New Year. Happy Chinese New Year to everybody. Happy Year of the Tiger. Wishing you prosperity and luck for the year. This week on the podcast, we are discussing Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Half of a Yellow Sun, which is a very famous book, a classic already, modern classic. And yeah, all right, so let's get started. So I had already read uh, Purple Hibiscus and The Thing Around Your Neck, which I really liked. I didn't like Purple Hibiscus that much. I think if I remember, I mean, it's been a long time since I read it, but I'm pretty sure the patriarch in the book is super religious. And I, I don't know why I just didn't, I just didn't like it so much. Uh, not that it was bad or something or that it said something bad about religion and not that I would care about that, but for whatever reason, I just didn't didn't uh, didn't rock with it that much. But the thing around your neck, I really liked. And so I'd always been planning to read more Adichie. And then my co-worker was going to teach this novel, Half of the Yellow Sun. And then once the school year started, she realized, well, it's a 500-page book. These kids are not native speakers. Maybe it's a bit ambitious. So I asked if I could have it. And, and then it was just sitting on my desk. And it was you know, people talk about like physical objects, if they have, you know, an, an inanimate object, if it has some kind of um, property to it. I swear, without being too much of a hippie, this book was calling out to me for the last two, three months, like, when, when are you going to read? When are you going to read it? When are you going to read it? So I finally carved out some time to read it uh, after I finished a nonfiction book last week by Paul Theroux, which was not great, but not bad. And I'm so glad I did, because this is this is a fantastic novel. I'm only 15 years late to the party. It was, you know, it's been voted as, like, one of the best books since the year 2000. So, breaking news, Half of the Yellow Sun, great novel. All right, so anyway, that's how I came to the book, and I really loved this book. It's fantastic. And yeah, all right, so I'm going to talk here. Like I said, this is a super famous book, so there's not a ton of new analysis for anybody to bring in, right? And that's not what this show is about. It's about just talking about a book with your friends. So I'm just going to talk about the stuff that I noticed in the book, the things that I liked, and then and then we're going to um, end the podcast. Once I've talked about everything I like, I'm done. Okay, but a quick summary. The book takes place in 1960s Nigeria, and it toggles back and forth between the early 60s and the late 60s. The early 60s being a period of decolonization but relative stability, and then the late 60s being the period of the Nigerian uh, civil war between Nigeria and Biafra. And so, yeah, it toggles back and forth between these two times, and um, the you can really basically split the novel into two big things. You can call them themes if you want, or you could call them plot devices or just story. But one would be the political side, where we are literally discussing the war between Nigeria, the people in the you know north or west, uh, the Hausa people, Fulani and the Yoruba, mainly the Yoruba and the Hausa, versus the Igbo people who are making up Biafra. So that's one way to look 
the novel, and it definitely discusses all of that. And then the other way would be the social dynamics of the people inside of those uh, of those places, really just inside of Biafra. And that would be between Richard, an expat from Britain, and Kainene, uh, and then Olana and Odenigbo, who are professors or assistant professors or budgeting professors at Nsaka University, and then Ugwu, who is their house servant. Those are the five big characters. And yeah, so so those are the two basic halves of the novel. There's a social aspect between these five characters and how they interact with each other. And then there's the political aspect of the war that's happening to them. Uh, the last thing I want to say about a plot device was there's heavy foreshadowing in this book. I believe it's in the second section where we find out that something happened between Olana and Richard. Uh, excuse me, Adichie doesn't tell us what happened, but I mean, basically, you know that they had sex. You know that uh, Richard cheated on Kanene and, and Olana cheated on Odenigbo and that she, like, betrayed her sister. But it's not spelled out for you. You just know that it happens. And uh, it's not really foreshadowing. I don't really know what to call that. I mean, it's basically telling you what has happened and then eventually, like, a hundred pages later, spelling it out for you. But anyway, it's a nice little device that... that is used to move the story forward, or rather, kind of keep that, and I use this phrase a lot, but keep the engine of the story humming. You know, it's kind of like the engine is idling while other stuff is going on. And in the back of your head, your this tension is just growing in your head, like, my goodness, when are we going to, when is this going to explode? It's more like, yeah, it's more like a gun, a Chekhov's gun, really. Okay, so anyway, that's your summary for what the novel is about and stuff. But let's get to uh, themes, because this is this is what I think is very interesting. Now, there are, there are themes that I'm not going to be talking about in here, um, like feminism and um, really the war, because those things have been talked about ad nauseum by anybody who, who's read the book. So I'm just going to talk about what I thought, what jumped out to me. Uh, so the first theme that I thought was just prevalent throughout the book is loss. Uh, now, the easy one would be physical loss. Uh, so many people die in the war, cousins, uh, family, servants, people are dying. So that's that's the easy one. And we'll come back to physical loss at the end. But okay, so that's the simple one. Then there's the loss of innocence. Similarly simple, but still important. So the first one I wrote down was Ugwu. He becomes a, eventually becomes a Biafran soldier, and his loss of innocence is acute. Um, he does some horrible things during the war, and we really like Ugwu and sympathize with him. He's one. Of, he's probably, like, easily the most sympathetic character who is a narrator in the novel. Everybody else is kind of flawed in this way or that way, but Ugwu, he's just a poor village kid, and then he gets brought out to become a houseboy, and then he's just, like, juiced to be able to have meat every day. He literally stuffs chicken in his pockets and like sleeps with it, you know, because he's like, I don't know when this meat's going to be taken away from me. So you're super sympathetic, but then he eventually commits these atrocities, whatever, you know, he has family members who die and all this stuff happens. And then he comes out the other side and, you know, he, he becomes a better person at the end of the novel, but still the, the loss of innocence is acute. So, so there's that. And that, that one's more of a classic loss of innocence, you know, Ugwu, he's like, what's interesting about him is, when they're forcefully conscripting soldiers, he keeps putting himself in harm's way, but he's not doing it on purpose necessarily, but he keeps taking these risks. And it really speaks to this 
this idea of what young men do in general. You know, it's like you're subconsciously putting yourself at risk because either A, you are too dumb when you're young and a man, and when you're young and a woman too, but I'm just speaking for at least, maybe this is a trope of men, but young men putting themselves at risk because you're too dumb to realize that you should think through your actions more, or B, because you literally want to seek out risk. It excites you. There's something about war or violence that excites you. And you could argue that Ugwu, constantly putting himself in harm's way, walking on paths um, where he shouldn't be walking, where they're forcefully conscripting soldiers, is actually his subconscious wanting to be in danger because there's something that a young man craves about war. It's, uh, it's like that Cormac McCarthy quote from Blood Meridian that I like to use all the time. Why does war persist? It persists because young men love it and old men love it in them. Great character, loved him. And yeah, lost his innocence. Olana, who's kind of the main character in the book, maybe everybody is who I've mentioned already, but she certainly has loss of innocence as the rich girl in the world. She's rich and sheltered and kind of an idealist a little bit and a little bit of a, uh, she becomes a feminist as the book goes on. So I said I wasn't going to talk about feminism, but mainly because I'm not qualified to, but uh, she, she, she sheds her her view of Odinigbo, who she's put on this pedestal, and he helps her shed it, for sure. And also, she just sheds her view of what it is to be out in the world, you know. She spends a lot of the book fretting over her child, and whether or not it will, the child will catch something from the dirtier children. And She's also just shocked by how her life has changed, and it makes her cry and stuff like that. So there's her loss of innocence. That one's pretty straightforward. And then Kainene, her sister, she also loses her innocence, which is weird because Kainene is my favorite character. She's kind of an enigma. She, like when, when she gets cheated on, Olana and Onigbo show up to their house and they want her to forgive Olana. And uh, Kainene says, it would be stupid for you. <laughs> it would be stupid for you to expect me to forgive something like this. She just basically for the entire novel for the first 400 pages at least, when she says something, it's final, and it's about one sentence long. And that's it. And she's just done. But then once an air raid happens in Port Harcourt, and she sees her servant, but she sees her servant decapitated by a piece of shrapnel. And that instantly snaps her out of this kind of hard-nosed reality she had been living in, where she thought that she knew what it what life was, but she hadn't really seen the true face of life, even though she had been in the war for years. Once she saw her servant decapitated, she realized it. And once she saw that too, she was able to forgive Alana. There are worse sins, there are worse things in the world than your sister being upset at you. Uh, I should mention they're twin sisters, by the way. Okay, and then uh, the last one is Odenigbo, Olana's lover and eventual husband, he loses his innocence too. He's a revolutionary, he's this idealist, but once his mother dies, his world just shatters around him, and he becomes a heavy drinker, and he realizes that his ideals are not going to protect him from the world. You know, nothing's going to protect you. So that's, that's I think, a huge theme of the novel is just these this loss of innocence and reality 
intruding upon the world that these people had set up for themselves. Of course, this is a stark reality in the middle of a civil war, but this is a universal concept in general when life actually intrudes upon you and whatever you've been, whatever safeguards you have in place to keep you from life, they're not going to do the job. You're going to have to confront whatever's happened and deal with it. That that keeps coming up throughout the novel. And Olana, Kanene, Odenigbo, and Ugmu, they each choose a different way to deal with it. Odenigbo drinks, but Olana says, I wish that you would talk to me so we could grieve together about your mother. Kainene throws herself into refugee work. Olana does the same, and that helps. Ugwu begins to write, but we'll get to we'll get to that later. Okay, so that's physical loss, loss of innocence, and the last thing is loss of culture. So there are two physical losses. I said I was going to come back to physical loss, and here I am. There are two physical losses that are representative. There's probably more than that, but there's at least two. And the two I want to talk about are the poet Okioma and the fact that he didn't really write his poems down. So in the first, in the in the early part of the 60s, he's at the university. He's a poet. His muse is Olana, and he will recite poems at Odenigbo's house in front of the other intellectuals. Remember, it's early 60s. I can't remember. I think he's speaking in Igbo, but maybe not. But let's let's assume that he was speaking in Igbo. At the end of the novel, I mean, literally in the 500s, Olana... So this is after Kainene has disappeared, the war is over, and then Olana has been looking everywhere for Kainene, and then she remembers... Okioma's poem, but she can't remember it. And she says, um, the only line she can remember is, if the sun refuses to rise, we will make it rise. Then she drives home and she gets home and Odenigwa says, you should lie down, Nikim, which is a term of endearment in Igbo. And then she says, do you remember the words of Okioma's poem about making the sun rise if it refused to rise? Clay pots fired in zeal, they will cool our feet as we climb, he said. Yes, yes. And then she said, or no, and then he says, it was my favorite line. I can't remember the rest. So this is kind of what Ezzy was talking about in that when a language dies, we lose an entire mode of being. We lose a culture. And here the war is over and Okioma has died and now his poetry has died with him. And so a, a way of being, a mode of being is now dead. And this is also kind of representative, too, of the, um, the oral traditions that we talk about, the griots of West Africa. If things aren't written down, they're lost to time. Of course, this has to do with the disruption of history by, the, by Europeans in Africa. Things weren't written down maybe for a while, but eventually they probably would have been, and some of them were. The point is, is that once Biafra falls and Okio is dead and the poems are gone and the language is dead, there's a whole consciousness that dies with it. So that, that's one version of the loss of culture. The second version of it is Kainene's disappearance. Now, I don't, as I mentioned, she's a twin. I don't think it's any coincidence that Kainene and Olana are twins, that they aren't identical and that when Biafra is gone, when the war is over, she disappears, almost at the exact same time. 
can't be coincidental. So if she represents Biafra, then everything that she is to the people who lost her is everything that Biafra was to Nigeria and Africa and the black world at large. So that's another mode of being and another type of thought that's lost to the world. Olana has lost half of herself, the person she knew best, and Richard, who was in love with her. Richard dabbed at his nose. Darkness descended on him, and when it lifted, he knew that he would never see Kanene again, and that his life would always be like a candlelit room. He would see things only in shadow, only in half glimpses. So if we just take that part, I mean, Richard's white, so it's not a perfect uh, extrapolation here. But if we just take that part and imagine that that's like the feeling of what it is for the larger black world to have lost by Afro, or the larger world to have lost by Afro, it's another mode of being and another consciousness that has gone out of the world. And with it, we're left in a kind of dusky, murky darkness, a candle-lit room. So uh, I thought those were some interesting themes around loss that I really liked. Uh, I was reading the novel, as I usually do when I just like hop right into books when I'm excited about them. I was like not paying that much attention, and then I was thinking, well, why are they twins? Does, does, does Adichie have a twin? Like, why are they twins? And then it it dawned on me like halfway through the book, like, oh, that's right, you're dumb. You forgot that you were dumb. And then, of course, I thought of Romulus and Remus, too, but we're not going to get into all of that. Uh, last two things I wanted to talk about here. One is the white man. Always got to talk about the white man. But no, so Richard is the white man in the book. There are three interesting things here, and I think only one of them is really explicitly addressed. So, yeah, all right, so let's talk about the first part. First part is, is that Olana sleeps with Richard. She, Richard believes that she would have chosen any man, and Olana, I think for her part, feels the same. Like, she just needed to, she needed to prove that she had the same kind of, uh, the same kind of right to make mistakes that Odenigbo did. I mean, not that anybody should be cheating on another person who they're with, but the point is, is that how, it shouldn't be acceptable for Odenigbo to go out and sleep with women, and, uh, and she can't, you know, and that gets back into the feminist thing. But stepping away from that just for a moment, and this is not a hotep podcast. Let's get that out there right now. I'm not a hotep. But it is interesting that she sleeps with a white man. And uh, that is definitely in the same way that white people in America feared that black men would steal their women. There is the same fear on the African continent, because there is a part where uh, a drunken colonel says to her, like, says to Kainani, like, oh, you shouldn't be with that, that guy. But that's, that's, that's a little bit different than the fact that basically Odinigbo is cuckolded by a white man. That part is never explicitly stated, and Odinigbo never comes out and says anything about his feelings about the fact that he slept with a white man. And I thought that was curious, because, again, Adichie does address the idea of inter interracial relationships earlier, and Odinibo is not shy about talking about the white man's uh, complicity, the Nigerian Civil War. So it's just interesting that he didn't actually explicitly say, like, I can't believe you cheated on me with the white man. Maybe he didn't feel that way. 
but you kind of would suspect that it would uh it would mean something to him, mean more to him than if she would have cheated on him with somebody else. But maybe not. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. The second thing is that Richard kind of treats kind of so this gets into the entire part of like Richard trying to be nat trying to quote unquote go native and speak Igbo and be a uh, be a Biafran and and really be part of the country and he kind of fetishizes in a way kainene like one of his um one of the pots that he fell in love with he's always showing them these pots showing them he's showing the biafrans the igbo people their pots the own pots that they made and at one point okiyomo points out to him like you keep showing us these pots like you're surprised that we could make them and then richard has to investigate himself and kind or do some introspect and ask introspection and ask himself like would I be just as surprised if anybody had made them? Like, am, am I trying to pay people a compliment by, by showing them these pots? But anyway, so he's, he's fetishized the pots, and then in a way he kind of fetishizes. The way he talks about the pots is kind of the way he talks about the Igbo people in general, Kainene, everybody. But he's not all bad, you know? And it's, it's really an interesting kind of tug of war there because, all right, it's very specific with white people in Nigeria because that's a colonizer colonized situation but for anybody in any kind of intercultural relationship for instance myself here in china i'm not even saying like as a person who's married to a chinese person who lives in china but just as a person who lives in china i have plenty of friends who live here are not married to chinese people uh if you're not but if you're just in this intercultural relationship you know it gets back to that as the idea of like well how much can you really be in a culture how much can you understand from another culture how much of your understanding is fetishization, which of course changes given the power dynamic involved in the relationship. How much of your understanding is objective? How much of your understanding is subjective? So it's, very, it's a very messy situation with Richard. And then you add in the power dynamic and it becomes almost impossible. He kind of should have known that he never could truly be a part of it. Because of that power dynamic, even without the power dynamic, it would have been a hell of a thing for him to overcome. But you add in the power dynamic and it, it, it taints everything he says about everybody and makes it seem a little bit fetishized. And yeah, even when he's describing Kanene's body, you start to wonder if he admires it in the same way he does the Igbo pots. Now, she doesn't have the typical African body right? What people would say is the typical African body. She's not, to use the parlance of our times, thick. But she's like this um, thin, angular woman. And so if the Igbo Akwu pots that he, roped pots that he loves are so uh, atypical for Africa as well, maybe he likes Kainene in the same way, her atypical uh, Africanness. Everything that he does is tainted with this idea. That's the thing. So it's all bound up together. The last thing about the white man in this novel is his... So I talked earlier about Odinigbo being a cuckold for... Or being cuckolded by Richard. And then in the same way, Richard spends his entire time with Kanene worried that he's being cuckolded by Madu, who is a colonel in the Biafran army, the Nigerian army and then the Biafran army. And he definitely just has that fear that I laid out about uh, white people in America, which is that the black man's going to steal now his woman, which 
she's not a white woman, but he's still scared. And finally, I mean, we're talking about on the last four pages of the novel, he finally confronts Madhu after Kanane's gone missing. He asks him, did you touch her? Did you touch her? And then, and then Madhu gets up. And let me just read this part. Madhu got up. Richard reached out and grasped his arm. Come back, he wanted to say. Come back here and tell me if you ever laid your filthy black hand on her. And then he uh, he, he punches uh, Madhu and then Madhu knocks it off. Um, but filthy black hand. There's so much in those three words, you know. So if we go back and we talk about everything, the taint that is on everything that Richard does because of the power dynamic and because of the impossibility of being inside of another culture, that taint becomes a giant stain spreading like an oil spill when you use the word filthy and then the amplifier in this case, not just the adjective, but the amplifier, black, right? Because if a white person were to touch, if a white person were to touch his wife, uh, he probably wouldn't say, get your filthy white hand off me, very unusual. But the, the amplifier of it being black leaves no doubt that although he liked Igbo people, maybe even loved them, he admired the pots, admired Kainene, maybe fetishized all these things, maybe loved them, maybe liked them, there could be no doubt that in the end, at the end of it, there was still some prejudice in his mind, as there is in all of us. All right, final thing I want to talk about here is redemption. So I talked earlier about Ugwu, who really is probably the, the best character in the book. He's just the most likable one. He's redeemed, and actually all of Nigeria is kind of redeemed through him. Because what happens is he starts writing. So I talked about how he learns to deal with his trauma by writing. But the larger point of this is that not only does he deal with his personal trauma, but his personal trauma is the trauma of the war. And how is he able to make his bad dreams, the nightmares, go away? Is to write more. That comes out in the book. And also, Richard eventually realizes that what he's been writing about the whole book, because he's a, he's a writer and he's trying to write the, the story of the war, he eventually realizes it's not my story to write. And Ugwu takes that over and he starts writing the story. So this speaks to two things. One, Nigerians need to write their own story. Africans need to write their own story. And two, in writing their own story, they will be able to dispel all of the, I mean, of course, not all of it, but some of it. They'll be able to dispel some of the bad history that has surrounded the country for since its inception, since the inception of it being Nigeria, which is something that was created, right? That's not, that's not the ancestral name of that land. So, yeah, that, that redemption that Agu offers is obviously what Adichie is trying to do because, I, I mean, I don't think that the, 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 the divisions in Nigeria are 100% healed even to this day. That's, that's an important aspect that Agu offers in this novel. Okay, I already gave my review at the top of this podcast, but just to reiterate, this is a beautiful novel, one of the best I've read in the last several years probably one of the best I've read in my life. Just a fantastic book. My favorite Adichie book. So yeah, I mean, nobody really should have to be told to go read this, but absolutely read it. On top of everything that was discussed here, read it just for, read it just to know more about the Nigerian Civil War. That would be good. 
just go read it just to know more about the Nigerian Civil War. It's kind of like when I read the um, the Soyinka novel. I need I knew so little about the Nigerian Civil War that after I read it, I had to go and um, you know read up on the Biafran War and uh, watch a few YouTube videos. I'm always loath to admit it. Watch a few YouTube videos. But yeah, so this this book would be good just for that. The literary quality of it is off the charts. You can choose your reason for reading the book, either for the literary quality, if you're just interested in the Nigerian Civil War, or if you uh, are just an Adichie fan. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. I'll be back in two weeks with Moonwitch Spider King by Marlon James. In the meantime, I'm going to try to find some smaller presses with uh with books by authors like myself who aren't famous and i'm going to try to pump out reviews of those and uh, do podcasts on those and i'm stop calling these things reviews man just podcasts but yeah because i want to do more in 2022 so in two weeks i'm definitely going to be doing moon witch spider king but hopefully between now and then i'll find a small press and snatch a book read it and talk about it and yeah so in one week maybe look out for that but in two weeks if that didn't happen i'll definitely be back with moonwitch spider king so until then stay safe stay black and keep reading there's time enough at last that's not fair that's not fair at all there was time now. There was was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>